Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now this is an american crime cast production visit us at accproductions.org and remember Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Lowndes County, Georgia investigators say Kendrick's death was a tragic accident. I was just really shocked. I broke down the car. I really had no reason in my head why they would be here. It just keeps on getting worse. There's enough evidence to show that Kendrick was murdered. Two sons of an FBI agent are describing raids on their residences in recent weeks in connection with an investigation into the death of a Valdosta high school student found rolled up in a gym mat. So the shoes were not collected as potential evidence. I don't understand why. If you were on this scene, would this have been something you would have left? No. Bag and tag. I was laying in bed. I got a bang on my door. Tactical gear? Yes, sir. To the nth degree. It was just like, it's about the Kendra Johnson case. I'm going... Kendra Johnson investigation. Deputy U.S. Marshals serving search warrants in connection with the mysterious death of Kendrick Johnson at Lowndes High School in 2013. They know something happened in that gym, and they don't want it to come out. And we tested it, and it was blood. And we did DNA testing, and it was not the blood of Kendrick Johnson. If it wasn't Kendrick blood, who blood was it? Did you ever find out who it was or any involved? No, as, it as of now, we haven't, no. But okay. it doesn't appear to be related to our crime in any way. What do you think about the, the, the decision not to test it further? You can't explain it. A kid couldn't have scraped their knee or arm or something and got that much blood on the wall. And there's the question, why was there no blood where they expected to see lots of blood? One might imagine Kendrick Johnson's mom feels like she's in a nightmare that won't end. Kendrick gives me strength. You know, he was our baby. He was my son. The Lowndes County Sheriff says after a thorough investigation, his office agrees with the state medical examiner that Johnson's death was an accident due to positional asphyxia, that he wedged himself in a rolled-up gym mat trying to reach a shoe and could not get out. I would imagine practically every one of your viewers sat scratching their head. My only angle is to find justice for my son. Did you have anything to do with the death of Kendrick Johnson? No, sir. Nor me or my family had anything to do with his death. special episode of California Dreaming for a couple of reasons. Remember some months back we did our drawing for the vacation series and I chose three entries then we put those three to a vote? Well, I promised you that I would touch on all three of the cities that were drawn in some capacity. We did Ohio in January and I still have Georgia and Michigan to go. But to change things up a little bit, 
so you don't get too bored just listening to me for an hour. Justin from Mysterious Circumstances so graciously has agreed to join me again a second time to bring you this crossover episode. The first one we did, The Disappearance of Bryce Las Pisa, was so well received by all of our listeners that we immediately began discussing doing it again. And so, this is a case that I chose, and we are going to pretty much present it to you in the same format as we did the first one. I will tell you the story, and he will go over the theories. Justin did such an incredibly thorough job on Bryce's disappearance, didn't he? And I'm so very happy to have him back for this story that we both think you will find intriguing and mysterious and sad. And if we don't get this done soon, our Georgia friend and listener, whose state I picked in the drawing, is going to take one of us out. Don't forget, Beth, you've known me longer, so I'm just saying. And without further ado, I am so very proud to present this second collaboration episode with the Mysterious Circumstances podcast, The Death of Kendrick Johnson. On January 10th, 2013, when 17-year-old Kendrick Lamar Johnson failed to return home from school that evening, his parents, Jacqueline and Kenneth Johnson, knew immediately that something was amiss. He was always home after school and sports, and if not, would otherwise be in regular communication with his family. Their youngest son, who was very active in school sports, was a member of the Lowndes County High School football, basketball, and track teams. So, of course, there'd always be practices after school. But that afternoon, Kendrick never turned up. The Johnsons reported their son missing that evening of January 10th. Kendrick would not stay missing for very long. The next day at school, in the gym, several students saw what they believed to be a pair of socks sticking out of a wrestling mat. When they decided to investigate what they were seeing further, and as they came closer to the mat, they realized there was in fact a body rolled up inside. I'm going to describe this for you in the best way possible. There were a number of rows of rolled up gym mats that were lined up behind the bleachers in the school gymnasium. They are standing up vertically, side by side, and it is my understanding that these mats are very heavy. I am not familiar with wrestling or wrestling mats, so I have no idea how these things are rolled up and unrolled and how many people it might take to arrange them standing up in rows like they were. But according to the police report, the students who discovered Kendrick stated that they decided to climb up on top of the mats that were lined up in their vertical positions. I suppose maybe it's a thing kids do, sit up there to relax or whatever. It was then that they noticed the white socks sticking out of one of the mats, one of the ones that was in the back of the rows lined up. They went to get a closer look, and it was then that they discovered there was a body inside the mat. The students immediately notified a teacher, at which time the teacher began pulling the vertical positioned mats down onto the ground so that they would be laying in the horizontal position, and the teacher would be able to make his way to the mat that the students pointed out. When the teacher finally made his way to the back row of the rolled-up mats, it was confirmed that there was a deceased body inside. It would turn out to be Kendrick. He had been rolled up in the wrestling mat head first. And when EMS arrived, 
They found him slightly pulled out of one end of the mat. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Kendrick was 17 years old. The following are some details regarding the condition of Kendrick's body at the scene when he was found in a report by the criminalist called to investigate this at the gym. And some of the following is graphic, and I just want to warn you. The coroner arrived around 4 o'clock that afternoon in order to conduct his investigation. Now, as I was finishing writing this episode, I came to learn that that's illegal. The coroner should have been called right away, not six hours later. Kendrick's body was found lying on his left side, sticking out of the rolled-up mat from his head to approximately his abdominal area. The remainder of his body, from approximately the abdominal area to his feet, was inside the rolled-up mat. Kendrick's head was on the floor in a pool of blood. His body was removed from the mat so that the coroner could conduct his investigation. Kendrick was wearing a white undershirt, an orange t-shirt, a belt, blue jeans, black boxer shorts, and white socks. There was one pair of white, gray, and orange Nike shoes inside the mat, and they were not on his feet. Kendrick's body was moved and placed into the supine position, or a flat position, so that the body could be further examined. He was placed on a sterile sheet to conduct an additional cursory examination for documentation. It appeared that rigor and liver mortis had set in already, which was consistent with the position of the way the body was found. Kendrick's right arm was in a position that appeared to cover his face, and his left arm was along his body with his forearm bent back towards his head. His fingers were loosely curled up on both hands. One black wire with white earphones was hooked around Kendrick's left hand and middle index finger. It appeared that rigor mortis had set in because of the stiffening of his body. Lividity was present on his head, arms, and chest area. Kendrick's face was swollen and had blood exiting from his eyes, nose, and mouth. There was visible dried blood on his arms, chest, and face. The smell of his body appeared that it was beginning to decompose. Kendrick's eyes were swollen, fixed, and dilated. Blood was visible in the eyes and had signs of petechia. There appeared to be no signs of blunt force trauma on Kendrick's face or body. There appeared to be no visible signs of wounds to his body. There were visible signs of skin slippage on Kendrick's abdomen, face, and arms. I feel like we all listen to and watch enough crime stuff to understand these terms, rigor and liver mortis, petechia, lividity, and slippage. So hopefully you do, because that's a lot of explaining here, and I really don't want to get too far off track, so I'm not going to go over the terminology here today. The following is the conclusion of the state of Georgia's initial autopsy report conducted on Kendrick. The decedent is a 17-year-old black teenage male who was found deceased upside down in the central hole of a rolled-up gym mat, which was stored standing on end in a vertical position in the gym of his high school. Per investigative reports, the decedent was seen via video cameras entering the gym alone on the afternoon of January 10, 2013. The decedent was reported missing by his family in the night-slash-early morning hours of the 10th into the 11th. The decedent was found the morning of the 11th by the students walking on top of the rolled-up mats. 
law enforcement investigated findings, crime scene investigator findings and reports, coroner's findings, witness statements, and scene photographs are received, reviewed, and discussed. The finding at autopsy is a well-developed and well-nourished black teenage male with congestive decomposition, changes of the head, neck, torso, and upper extremities. No significant natural disease process or injuries are identified. Analysis of post-mortem liver for drug screen testing is negative for cocaine or common opioids. Analysis of post-mortem liver for drug confirmation testing is negative for a comprehensive drug screen. Given the complete autopsy, including toxicology and histology, the scene photographs, the scene forensic testing, the law enforcement investigative findings, including crime scene investigator reports and witness statements and the coroner's findings, it is my, meaning the coroner, not me, the cause of death in this case is positional asphyxia which means Kendrick was positioned in a way that inhibited his ability to breathe, causing him to suffocate to death. And the manner of death is accidental. Kendrick's parents vehemently dispute the findings of the coroner. They believe their son's death was a murder, and they were out to prove it. They hired attorney Benjamin Crump to represent and advocate for them. You may have heard of him before. He represented the family of Trayvon Martin, the teenager who was shot and killed by self-proclaimed neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman. Crump started off strong by winning a court order to have Kendrick's body exhumed for a second autopsy. Kendrick's family sought the expertise of outside forensic medical examiners to conduct the second autopsy. And those findings greatly differed from the findings of the first autopsy. It was found that Kendrick suffered a blunt force injury to the right side of his neck. There was acute hemorrhaging of the soft tissue of the upper neck. It also found in its review of the pulmonary findings are consistent with the rapid onset of death, not consistent with positional asphyxia. The second autopsy ruled Kendrick's cause of death being blunt force trauma to the neck with this note. An unexplained, apparent, non-accidental blunt force trauma. Further investigation is indicated to determine that the etiology or manner of the injuries in other words, this forensic pathologist thinks investigators need to take another look at Kendrick's death, that someone caused this injury to his neck, and that it led to a rapid death, and he was placed in that mat to conceal what had been done. The second autopsy revealed an aspect of the initial forensic pathologist examination that Kendrick's family found to be somewhat troubling. All of Kendrick's internal organs, from his pelvis to his skull, were missing. This did not bode well for the second autopsy, as none of those things, the brain, the heart, the lungs, liver, and other viscera, were all gone, and none of it could be examined by the private pathologist. Instead, Kendrick's torso and skull were filled with newspaper. So, is this actually a thing? Is it a normal course of action to dispose of or otherwise destroy the internal organs post-autopsy? I'd actually never heard of anything like this because in the few cases I have heard of where a body was exhumed for a second autopsy, it seems the organs remained with the body and were available for re-examination. On WebMD, I found an article that said kind of yes and no, stating that after the organs are examined by the pathologist in their normal body location, the organs, in order to be examined further, 
Usually the organs of the chest and abdomen, and sometimes the brain, are removed for further study. At this point, the organs are usually separated from each other and further dissected to reveal any abnormalities such as tumors on the inside. Small samples of normal and abnormal tissue are typically taken from all of the organs and then prepared as slides for examination under a microscope. At the end of the autopsy, the incisions made in the body are sewn closed. The organs may be returned to the body prior to closing the incision, or they may be retained for teaching, research, and diagnostic purposes. It is permissible to ask about this when giving consent for an autopsy to be performed. In most cases, relatives of the deceased can also stipulate that the organs be returned to the body for burial, if they so choose. I read another article in Live Science regarding the reconstitution of the body once the autopsy is completed. Following the examination, the organs are either returned to the body or cremated in accordance with the law and the wishes of the family. The breastbone and ribs are usually put back. Prior to being sewn shut, the body is lined with cotton wool or a similar material. If the organs are returned to the body, they are first placed in bags to prevent leakage. Then the body is sewn shut, washed, and prepared for the funeral director. Bodies that have undergone autopsy are still available to have open casket funerals, even in the case when the brain is autopsied too, as the casket pillow will disguise the cranial cut. And so, as for Kendrick's parents, when they discovered their son's body was stuffed with newspaper and a second comprehensive autopsy was then impossible to conduct, this further fueled their skepticism of the official findings of the initial investigation, that their son's death was an accident. Is it normal to dispose of the organs after the autopsy is completed without running it by the parents first? Is this something that is done after all autopsies in that medical examiner's office in Georgia? Could this be some sort of cover-up or just a standard operating procedure? Is it normal to put newspapers in place of organs? I tend to be somewhat suspicious of the organs being missing. If there is an inkling of suspicion surrounding the death, it seems like the best thing to do would be to keep the organs with the body, just in case of a future potential investigation. I don't think the Johnsons had any idea disposal of organs was something that was commonplace. I don't think they knew to ask, but they're not the experts. I'm not sure they had anyone on their side yet to advocate for them at this point in their son's case. Don't you think the coroner should have mentioned it or perhaps the police? Aren't the police supposed to be thorough when it comes to a potential suspicious death? I mean, accident or not, isn't Kendrick's death somewhat weird to begin with? You don't have to be a detective to see that the way he was found was kind of strange. Of course, I'm no expert, and I do think Kendrick's death in and of itself is mysterious, even if it was an accident. And those who call it an accident always refer to it as a freak accident or a bizarre accident. Those words alone should have triggered some red flags for someone along the way to have stepped in to ensure Kendrick's body remained intact, just in case. But nobody did. His death was ruled an accident, and once that became official, Georgia investigators proclaimed it case closed. And what about the funeral home stuffing Kendrick with newspapers? What is that? And why did they do that? Was it a cost-cutting thing? Maybe. I'll be able to expand on that just a little bit more later on. I don't know how commonplace of a practice that is, but it just feels kind of yucky, doesn't it? 
I liked what I read on Live Science where it stated that the body is lined with cotton wool. That sounds so much better than stuff with newspapers, but that's just my opinion. Who knows? I suppose 99.9% .9 of the time the family is none the wiser, right? Who's going to go around asking for their deceased family member to be reopened to make sure their body is filled with the proper materials? Probably not that many. I bet the funeral home never thought Kendrick would be exhumed for autopsy number two. Maybe if they had, they might have done things differently. In the end, the funeral home was found of no wrongdoing in filling Kendrick's body cavity and skull with newspapers, stating while it's not the best practice for any mortician, it's not illegal either. No laws were violated. But these findings didn't make things any better or easier for Kendrick's parents, as they have never been given a straight answer as to where his organs actually ended up, as the investigation into the matter couldn't determine if the organs were transferred to the funeral home with the body or not. The coroner's office did say that the organs were far too decomposed to be returned to Kendrick's body, but beyond that, there is no further information as to what really became of them. The GBI claims that they were sent over to the funeral home with the body. Let's talk about surveillance video. So Kendrick's high school is equipped with video surveillance cameras throughout the entire campus that recorded everything. This is good, right? I mean, theoretically, we should be able to get a glimpse of what might have happened to Kendrick, shouldn't we? Well, not so fast. In November of 2013, 290 hours of surveillance tape from 35 cameras that covered the gym area was released following a court order. Kendrick's family waited months for those hours and hours of surveillance tape, hoping that it would answer some of their questions. But not only did it not provide any answers to any of the questions the family had about Kendrick's last afternoon alive, the footage actually raised even more questions about their son's death. Nowhere on the footage were they shown how Kendrick ended up in that wrestling mat. The four cameras inside the gym showed only a few collective seconds of Kendrick jogging around the gym. And the camera that was trained on the area where the mats were stored was blurry. The video from the gym is jumpy, with students intermittently appearing and disappearing from frame to frame, and there are no timestamps on the videos. This, of course, is leading Kendrick's family to come to the conclusion that the videos have been tampered with before being handed over. As you could have guessed, his parents will never believe their son climbed into that wrestling mat, got stuck, and died. But where is that portion of the video? There is a camera trained on those mats, right? And why is there no timestamp? Without a time code, there is no way to tell when the events shown in the video took place, nor can they be synchronized with any known timeline. What do you guys think? Whenever we see video surveillance, doesn't it always have a time and date stamp? I mean, even from the very early days of video surveillance, those markers have always been on there. A surveillance is useless unless it's time stamped, isn't it? So what happened to the time stamp? Is it some kind of technological glitch? Or... Was it done on purpose by someone who manipulated the video prior to handing it over to the family and the media? The family thinks someone messed with the video, but the high school insists the video contains a raw feed with no edits. And the county sheriff is continuing to insist Kendrick died while trying to reach for a shoe in one of the mats, and further insists that the videos were not edited in any way 
despite the fact that nowhere in the video is Kendrick seen getting on top of those mats to retrieve a shoe. But that's the official story, and they are sticking to it. And that's something I'm hoping Justin will explore in his theories portion of this. CNN had filed suit in order to gain access to the video, and once they did, they hired a forensic video analyst to analyze the 290 hours of video from those 35 cameras located inside and outside the gym. The analyst was also given several hundred more hours of video from 31 cameras in other parts of the high school. He found that some of the anomalies in the videos could have a plausible explanation. But there was one thing that stood out, something that raises more of a mystery. All four cameras from inside the gym were missing at least one hour of video footage. He came to the conclusion that the video files that were turned over to CNN, the ones that he analyzed were not original files, further calling them not something investigators should rely on for the truth of the video. He pointed out that the erratic motion in the video can be attributed to motion sensors triggering the camera's recording functions, and that the blurriness on the camera that was trained on the gym mats is a result of the camera lens being out of focus. He also said that the timestamp is embedded, they just needed to know where to look for it and how to access it. So that makes me wonder if the timestamp was purposely hidden, requiring a forensic expert in order to access it. He did find a little more than 18 minutes of video of Kendrick throughout the school on January 10th. He first appears on the video at 7.31 a.m. entering the school, and he is last seen at 1.09 p.m. walking into the gym, the place where he was found deceased the next morning. What he wasn't able to find was any video surveillance images showing whether or not anyone else was in the gym at the time Kendrick was in there. That kind of footage, if it were available, could have been pivotal in determining what really happened to Kendrick. He came to this conclusion about the video. It has been altered in a number of ways, primarily in image quality and likely in dropped information, information loss. There are also a number of files that are corrupted because they have not been processed correctly and they are not playable. I can't say why they were done that way, but they were not done correctly and they were not done thoroughly. So we are missing information. Two of the cameras in the gym are missing an hour and five minutes of footage. They start up again at 109 after Kendrick walked into the gym. There is another gap in two more cameras, both missing about two hours and 10 minutes each. These cameras resume recording at 1.15 and 1.16 p.m. Based on what can be seen on the video outside the gym, it can be seen that several students walked into the gym during the hour and five minutes that the cameras were recording. And what else is strange is the timestamp on the camera outside the gym appears to be 10 minutes behind the cameras on the inside of the gym. So what does this mean? So many questions, right? All these students walking into the gym don't trigger the camera sensors to kick them on to begin recording, but they do when Kendrick walks in? What does that mean? And how is it possible that the cameras outside the gym are 10 minutes behind the cameras inside the gym? How can that happen? And how does this change the way things may have gone down that afternoon Kendrick was last seen? What the expert analyzing the video couldn't be certain of is whether there was no information recorded in the digital video system or whether somebody made an error and didn't capture it, or whether somebody just didn't provide portions of the videos when they were turned over. Police have said they didn't receive copies of the videos until several days after Kendrick's body was discovered, 
and the expert analyst has stated that the fact that the hour of video is missing is highly suspicious, considering that material was acquired by police already. But the video that was given to the police was handed over by an information technology officer employed by the school board, who was given instructions to produce a copy of the surveillance video for the entire wing of the school with the gym for the past 48 hours. According to the sheriff's report, the IT officer delivered the video, but what's concerning is the sheriff had left it up to the school district as to what they were to provide to police, and that can be left open to interpretation. What the experts look at as a mistake on the part of the sheriff. Do you really want someone who might have an interest in what should be made available to the police and what shouldn't? And here begins the legal wrangling. Kendrick's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Lowndes County Board of Education, its superintendent, and the high school principal. The suit alleges that Kendrick was violently assaulted, severely injured, suffered great physical pain and mental anguish, and subjected to an insult and loss of life on January 10, 2013. The lawsuit didn't name names, nor did it imply the race of the person allegedly involved in Kendrick's death, but there was a strong implication that race was a factor in the assault. The lawsuit contends that the school was negligent and violated Kendrick's constitutional right to equal protection based on race, that they ignored reports prior to the day of his death that Kendrick was repeatedly attacked and harassed by a white student, and that Kendrick was attacked on a bus trip 14 months prior to his death. Also, the lawsuit states that the other student had a prior history of provoking and attacking Kendrick at school, and that he was attacked again in the presence of the coaching staff and school employees after Kendrick's mom complained about the attacks, and that the school officials failed to properly monitor the activities of students throughout all areas of the campus and to maintain properly functioning video surveillance systems. I will talk more about those students named in Kendrick's family's lawsuit a little bit later. But, by the way, their dad is an FBI agent. In January of 2015, Kendrick's family doubled down on the lawsuits and filed a $100 million civil lawsuit in DeKalb County, naming 38 respondents, including three of Kendrick's classmates, local and state and federal officials, the school superintendent, the Valdosta Lounge Crime Lab, the police chief of Valdosta, several sheriff's deputies, the city of Valdosta, and the state medical examiner, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, five of its agents, and one FBI agent, the father of those two students. The lawsuit alleged that the FBI agent and his two sons and another classmate attacked Kendrick. Kendrick's family contended that his death was a murder and that there was a conspiracy by all of the respondents to cover up the homicide. The Lowndes County attorney stated that the allegations are completely baseless and unfounded. Interestingly, all of the local Superior Court judges who could have presided over the case recused themselves from it altogether, citing their close proximity to the accused, that it was inappropriate for these judges to preside over the case. This essentially made it impossible for the lawsuit to be tried and heard in Lowndes County. And then there were more complications and roadblocks. On October 29, 2015, attorney Benjamin Crump informed Kendrick's parents in a letter that his firm would be unable to continue its legal representation in coordination with their lead attorney, Shaveen King. 
He said the State Bar of Georgia did not grant him special permission to represent the Johnsons beyond the initial pleadings to acquire the surveillance recordings from the high school. His letter also stated, I have not been able to participate in any meaningful way with Attorney King in the strategy, the drafting, or the filing of any pleadings in your son's wrongful death claim beyond that one initial pleading. Well, it should be noted that Georgia law dictates that the court, not the state bar, approve or deny an attorney's application to join a case. In addition, the state bar's general counsel expressed no objection to Crump's application to represent the Johnson family. However, the Lowndes County Clerk of Court's office stated that there is no document on file that shows Crump applied to represent the Johnsons in the wrongful death case. So, who knows why Mr. Crump chose to no longer represent the family. And that wasn't the end of the attorneys dropping like flies. Shortly before Kendrick's family's lawsuit was filed, the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael J. Moore, stated that a federal investigation into Kendrick's death was still open and that the investigation has proven to be more complex and taken longer than they had anticipated. He had opened the review of Kendrick's death in October of 2013, but then, in November of 2015, he announced his resignation as his review of Kendrick's case had just entered into its third year. And with his resignation, the federal investigation was handed over to and would apparently be continued by the Northern District of Ohio under the leadership of Stephen Dettelbach. But once again... In the same month as having received Kendrick's case in November of 2015, U.S. Attorney Dentelbach resigned too. But, according to the Department of Justice, the investigation is still ongoing, despite these resignations. Still, in November of 2015, the DOJ filed a motion in the civil lawsuit to intervene and stay the case. The U.S. Attorney said allowing evidence in the civil suit to continue would have a chilling effect on the federal investigation, which had by then expanded into some possible instances of obstruction and grand jury witness tampering, but their motion to stay the case was denied. Following that, Kendrick's parents dismissed their wrongful death lawsuit without prejudice, which means they would be able to refile their lawsuit at a later date. The Johnson family attorney stated that dismissing this suit was a strategic move to allow federal investigators more time to gather evidence in the case. But since the civil lawsuit had been dismissed, this meant the Johnson family could face substantial claims for attorney fees racked up by the defendants named in the suit. And that's exactly what happened. In March of 2016, the former defendants filed suit seeking more than $850,000 in attorney fees, as well as $100,000 in defamation damages. And then, on June 20, 2016, more than two and a half years since the federal investigation was opened, and almost three and a half years after Kendrick's death, the United States Department of Justice announced that they will not be filing any criminal charges related to Kendrick's death, stating that there is not enough evidence to support federal criminal charges. The Justice Department stated, in part, After an extensive investigation into this tragic event, Federal investigators determined that there is insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone or some group of people willfully violated Kendrick's civil rights or committed any other prosecutable federal crime. Accordingly, the investigation into this incident has been closed without the filing of federal criminal charges. 
A little more than a year after the federal investigation closed, the Johnsons filed a third lawsuit alleging a massive conspiracy to cover up the true cause of death of their son. The newest lawsuit alleges that the photographs and moving images captured on the school surveillance were either doctored or withheld. It also claimed that Kendrick was attacked by the two brothers, the sons of that FBI agent, and an accomplice. Then the three of them, the FBI agent, the school superintendent, and a former sheriff, rolled Kendrick's body into the gym mat and devised a plan to make his death look like an accident. The suit also alleges that two of the school superintendent's daughters were enlisted by their father to, quote, discover, unquote, Kendrick's body. On August 10, 2017, a judge ruled that the Johnson family and their attorney must pay more than $292,000 in legal fees to the dozens of people that they accused of foul play in their lawsuit that they had dropped. They were granted the right to appeal this ruling in October of 2017, and as of right now, that is where the legal battle stands. Throughout this saga, much has been swirling around the sons of that FBI agent. I haven't named them yet, but they have since gone public and even given interviews, so they're not attempting to keep their names out of the media. They are brothers Brian and Brandon Bell, the ones who Kendrick's parents say attacked their son and orchestrated a cover-up in the gym along with an accomplice, who I will talk about later. In an interview they gave a couple of years ago to their local news affiliate, they insisted that they are innocent. They've never been charged with anything, but remain the subjects of Johnson's civil lawsuit. At the time that they were under federal civil rights and grand jury investigations into the death, Brian Bell, who had won a football scholarship to Florida State University, had it revoked after he was named in the suit. He ended up attending the University of Akron. Brandon Bell stated in his interview, I want everyone to know the truth. They can ridicule me and they can say whatever they want, but in the end, the truth will prevail and everybody will find that me and my brother are innocent and we have always been innocent. Brandon claims that he was on a bus to a wrestling match at the time of the incident while Brian said he was in class. While being investigated, their home had been subject of a 5 a.m. raid on their house when federal marshals seized cell phones and computers. But according to their attorney, the raid was part of their investigation into witness tampering and obstruction of justice, not murder. And the Bell brothers deny doing either. Brian said Kendrick was one of his good friends, who he met in the sixth grade, on the football team. They played together until Kendrick quit the team his sophomore year. Brian also denied allegations that he killed Kendrick over a fight that they had had the previous year, a fight he claims he can't remember what that was about, but it was a small fight and a ridiculous one. His brother said he recalled Kendrick being back at the house right after the fight, also stating that Kendrick's death was at his own hands and that they were very sorry for what happened to him because he and Brian were best friends. But Kendrick's mom is vehement. Brian and her son were not even friends, let alone best friends. They just played on the same football team. In June of 2017, the FBI released its report on the analysis of the Lowndes High School surveillance footage. It was determined that Brian Bell was not near Kendrick when he was last seen on campus. These reports had been made available earlier, but the names of the students had been redacted, but the unredacted version was made available in June through court filings filed by Bell's parents. His brother, Brandon, was not the subject of the FBI analysis. 
It concluded that Brian Bell was headed towards the D-Wing for his fourth-block class at the time Kendrick was entering the school's gym. Photographs show Kendrick was walking across the gym floor at 1.27 p.m., and Brian Bell was walking along the exterior of the school towards the D-Wing at 1.28 p.m. At the same time, Brandon Bell was on a bus headed to a wrestling match in Macon, Georgia, according to an investigation conducted by the Lowndes County Sheriff's Department and confirmed by documents and phone records obtained by the Valdosta Daily Times. There are just a couple of more things I need to talk about before I pass this on to Justin so he can delve into the theories and conspiracies. Right before Kendrick's parents were ordered to repay lawyers' fees to the defendants they named in their lawsuit, their attorney had filed a statement from a man claiming to have heard a spontaneous confession from one of the Bell brothers. But after this information was submitted to the court, the man was arrested on trespassing charges, and this, the Johnsons contend, was a bogus arrest in an ongoing, far-reaching, conspiratorial attempt to silence this new evidence in their son's case. Before the Johnsons withdrew their suit, Mr. Johnson had to admit in a sworn deposition that he had no evidence to support any of the claims that he had made in the lawsuit, and he subsequently withdrew that initial suit. They were later held liable for the lawyer's fees of those they accused without evidence. We talked about that. On August 8, 2016, they were ordered to pay that $292,000. But two days earlier, on August 6, their attorney filed an affidavit in opposition to the pending fees ruling that contained that statement regarding that alleged confession. That statement was made by a 27-year-old Valdosta man named Ryan Anthony Domek Hernandez. In his statement, he claims that he was at Brandon Bell's Jacksonville, Florida apartment in April of 2016, and that he admitted a number of things. That Brian Bell killed Kendrick, that Brandon Bell, Brian Bell, and their accomplice, Ryan Hall, argued with Kendrick in the school's gym. That Brian Bell struck Kendrick with a dumbbell. That he threatened Ryan Hall to keep quiet. That former FBI agent Rick Bell, the Bell brother's dad, contacted former Lowndes County Sheriff Chris Prine about the fight, that Chris Prine met with the county coroner. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the coroner's role in all of this towards the end of my segment, and that an unnamed FBI agent altered the Lowndes High School surveillance footage, that Kendrick's organs were removed to try and hide the time of his death, and his autopsy records were falsified. These claims seem to line up with all of the allegations Kendrick's parents have made over the years. But most of these claims have seemingly been discredited by pretty hard evidence. For example, according to Bell family spokesperson, Brendan was enrolled in classes at Valdosta State University and was living at an apartment off campus around the time Domet Hernandez claims to have met him in Jacksonville. The FBI report had confirmed that Brian Bell, Brandon Bell, and Ryan Hall were not near Kendrick when he was last seen on surveillance footage and that Brandon Bell was off-campus headed to that wrestling match in Macon, Georgia. Video footage shows Kendrick walking into the gym alone, and he did not appear to meet with anyone when he arrived. And an analysis of the video footage seems to also explain away what appears to be edits or missing footage in the surveillance recordings. The GBI has also insisted that Kendrick's organs were returned with his body to the Harrington Funeral Home, after the autopsy was completed, and the funeral home was cleared of any wrongdoing in their handling of Kendrick's body. So what about this Domet Hernandez guy? Well, 
His statement was presented as evidence on August 6th. Twelve days later, he was arrested by the Valdosta Police Department and charged with criminal trespassing. That's when Kendrick's mom took to Facebook to claim that he was being jailed on bogus charges in an effort to suppress his statements. But the Valdosta Police incident report tells something different. It says at approximately 5.30 a.m. on August 18th, Valdosta Police Department officers were dispatched to a residence near Eager Road in reference to a reported trespassing. A woman reportedly told police that she was in her bathroom when Domek Hernandez came to the bathroom window and punched through the glass in an attempt to enter her home. At 6.05 a.m., a Valdosta police officer at South Georgia Medical Center reportedly witnessed Domek Hernandez walking through the emergency room entrance without a shirt on and blood on his right hand and a belt wrapped around his right forearm. He reportedly attempted to register at the front desk as John Doe, but the officer recognized him from previous encounters and was aware of a recent be-on-the-lookout call issued as a result of the trespassing incident. As the officer began to approach him, Domek Hernandez walked out of the lobby. The officer, noticing the arm injury, tried to grab him by his shorts. They struggled momentarily until the officer drew his taser, but he didn't have to use it. The officer sat Domek Hernandez down and applied pressure to his arm to try and stop the bleeding, but he refused the help, stating that he wanted to bleed out, loosening the belt around his arm. He was eventually provided medical treatment by the attending staff at the hospital, and he was subsequently arrested and charged with trespassing and taken to jail. He was later released on bail. He's had several other arrests, including burglary and drug charges. So what does all this mean in terms of his statement and his credibility? You have to decide. In a very lengthy Reddit post, there was an interesting thread that called out Kendrick's parents for spinning the conspiracy theory idea with misleading information and untruths. I can't be certain of how much of this is fact or opinion, but it is important to see this case from all perspectives. And either we're going to draw our own conclusions, or we're going to end up like me, more confused than ever. First, there's a claim that Brian and or Brandon Bell murdered Kendrick and rolled up his body into that mat. And because their dad is an FBI agent, this fuels the conspiracy theory idea. Kendrick's dad told the media that he had been in a fight on a school bus with Brian Bell shortly before he died. But the fight reportedly happened more than a year earlier, not recently. They had been friends for years, but they got into it on a bus to a football game. And as I said earlier, Brian was elsewhere on campus when Kendrick was last seen. And it was apparently Johnson supporters that contacted FSU, who eventually pulled their scholarship offer to Brian Bell. I also told you that Brandon Bell was on a bus on his way to a wrestling event. But in November of 2014, the Johnson's family attorney claimed to have found a travel log that detailed the wrestling bus leaving at 4 p.m., not the previous stated time of 12.30 p.m., suggesting that the entire wrestling team, the coaches, the bus driver, the parents of the wrestlers, the school administration, and a dozen or so teachers who excused the wrestling students from the classes somehow got together and orchestrated a false alibi for Brandon Bell, and that all of this was arranged by their dad, the FBI agent. But the issue with the theory is that the travel log isn't really a travel log. It's a trip request filled out by the coach weeks before the event. 
The 4 p.m. isn't the time the bus was scheduled to leave, but the time the event was scheduled to start. The coach had no idea when the bus was supposed to leave because he hadn't spoken to the bus driver yet when he put in that travel request. And the tournament that day, it seems that it did begin at 4 p.m. According to all witnesses, Brandon Bell was in attendance. Also, Kendrick's dad had made some statements to the media about the state of his son's body when he identified him. He was the one who made the identification. He claimed to the media that while he was doing so, he noticed that both the room and the storage drawer Kendrick was being kept in was heated. Kendrick's mom also further pushed this idea in the media by telling reporters that the Valdosta Crime Lab purposely heated her son's remains in an effort to destroy evidence. This claim has been disputed by an inspection of the crime lab, and it was verified that Alarms are armed to go off if a room or storage temperature rises above the appropriate temperature. There are also emergency generators that were fully functional to keep the lab cool in case of emergencies. At rallies and on Facebook, Kendrick's parents have publicly made the claim that not only are the Bell brothers responsible for Kendrick's death, but the son of the Lowndes County Sheriff, sometimes they refer to him as his grandson, is also involved. But the sheriff doesn't have a son or a grandson. And what's odd is when the non-existent son of the sheriff is brought up by anyone advocating for the Johnsons, they're never really corrected. So I guess his family just sort of runs with it. When Kendrick's autopsy was completed, his body was released to the funeral home. The GBI states that they handed over all of Kendrick's organs, which were placed in plastic bags and placed inside the body cavity. The funeral home is tasked with either disposing of the organs properly or embalming them and replacing them. If the organs are disposed of, most funeral homes fill the cavities with sawdust or cotton. And as I told you earlier, Kendrick was filled with newspaper. And apparently this used to be commonplace until the 1970s. It has also been reported that the funeral home that was taking care of preparing Kendrick for the funeral had offered to do so for free, or nearly free, which may explain why the organs weren't embalmed and replaced and why newspaper was used. They could be cheap or they could be old-fashioned. However, Kendrick's mom has accused the funeral home of destroying Kendrick's organs to destroy evidence and that the funeral home is somehow involved in the cover-up conspiracy. Whatever happened to Kendrick's organs, samples of them were examined and kept by the GBI and those slides remain in storage to this day. And about those edited videos, I'm going to let Justin try to hash out that theory, but I wanted to point out another contradiction in the media about the release of those videos. The Johnsons accused the high school and the school board of blocking the release of those videos to the public. But the fact is that those videos needed to be released by court order because of the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or FERPA laws. The family was reportedly invited to view the videos at the school board several times, but the Johnsons never took them up on the offer. What's more, it seems that it wasn't the attorneys for the Johnsons that filed the motion for the release of those videos. It was the attorneys for the school board and the sheriff's office who filed the motion, and the Johnsons' attorneys took the credit for it. And lastly, when it comes to the condition of Kendrick's face post-mortem, which was put out by the media by his parents, and really got people to believe that Kendrick was beaten to death. 
Most people came to believe that this picture of Kendrick is how he looked when he was pulled out of the mat. And I don't know if you've seen it because I haven't. And I'm not going to suggest that you look it up because I hear it's really disturbing. But according to an article I read, that picture that's been going around is not how Kendrick appeared when he was pulled out of that wrestling mat. There is also a link to a picture of how Kendrick actually looked when he was pulled from the mat. I'm not going to be clicking on any of those links either, but Justin said that he would do the dirty work and give us a description of those pictures. So the point is, is that Kendrick's family, it seems, used a post-autopsy photo in an effort to shock the public. And it was much more gruesome than the actual photos of him when he was pulled from the mat and would garner a stronger reaction. Later on, Kendrick's dad revealed in a sworn deposition that the photo was taken at the funeral home by the Johnson family themselves. The actions of the family, if these claims are true, leave you wondering who's really trying to perpetrate the conspiracies. On YouTube, there is a video uploaded by Anonymous, that anonymous international group of activists and hackers. They have one discussing the Kendrick Johnson conspiracy theories. I'm going to share the audio of that anonymous video. Some of the information I've covered, but some of it, including some of the case details that I haven't talked about, are included. And if you've been vacillating between who's telling the truth and who's lying so far in this episode, then it's probably going to get worse. Take a listen. Greetings, world. We are Anonymous. On the evening of January 10th, 2013... 17-year-old Kendrick Johnson, a sophomore at Lowndes High School in Valdosta, Georgia, was reported missing by his mother Jackie, a bus driver for Lowndes County Schools. He had went to school that morning, but did not return home so his mother called 911. The following day KJ's body was discovered inside of a gym mat in Lowndes High School's old gym. The superintendent West Taylor's two daughters were the first to discover. KJ's body by seeing a pair of feet with white socks sticking out of the vertical rolled gym mat. These students notified teachers and they moved the gym mat to the floor exposing KJ's body still in the gym mat. Local authorities were called, as well as the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Both law enforcement agencies were on the scene for hours before the coroner was called, which is a violation of Georgia law. Paramedics that arrived on scene said the scene should be considered a crime scene. They were aware that the scene they were at was that of a homicide. The paramedics noticed bruising on KJ's body, including bruises to his neck and face. The law enforcement agencies did not secure the area with crime scene tape as they already had a theory in place as to what happened. Their official story is that KJ, whose shoulders measured 19 inches wide, dove headfirst into a 6 foot long rolled up gym mat, with a hole of 14 inches wide, to obtain a shoe. He had gotten stuck in the mat and being upside down for that long. He died. There was a pool of blood under the gym mat, but none on the shoe that he had dived in the mat to retrieve. KJ's shoes that he was wearing when he was last seen on the surveillance cameras were tossed into the mat near his feet that were in the air. There were also another pair of gym shoes and a hoodie near the gym mat. Those were not collected as evidence. There was also blood on a vertical beam located near the mat and the trash can in one of the bathrooms of the old gym was filled with bloody paper towels. These were quickly dismissed by saying a female had gotten injured in the old gym the night before, as KJ's dead body was laying in the mat. 
the blood was only tested to see if it matched KJ's, and it did not. When asked about the evidence that was not collected, Sheriff Chris Prime became angry and said this. Got some questions about the Kendrick Johnson case. Why not, sir? Because our case is closed. The family has some concerns about why some things were not taken into evidence. There was blood on the I'm wall. I discussed the case with you. And wh why is that? Because I don't want to. Then, less than a minute after he'd invited us in, what did you not understand that I said? I'm through talking to you. The coroner was not notified for six hours. Sheriff Prime excused this as not wanting the coroner to have to wait on investigators to sweep the scene. There are reports that the investigators wore gloves during the investigation, but they failed to wear foot protection. The foot protection is not to actually protect the shoes from anything, but to protect the scene from any foreign contaminants. Several students at Mounds High School said they saw KJ's body be taken out of the gym immediately after discovery. The students who were interviewed about the discovery share a very similar explanation. They said students often played on top of the mats. On the evening of January 11th, Sheriff Prine was telling media it was an accident. Some information on positional asphyxia from Wikipedia.com was included in the Sheriff's report. The coroner, after being pursued by Victor Blackwell from CNN, later admitted that the scene had been compromised and the report he wrote was changed by Lowndes County Sheriff. He provided his original report, and Lowndes County Sheriff's Office had removed many things from it. KJ's mother was at the office in the school that day checking to see if her son had come to school. He had been marked absent. During her time in the office KJ's body was discovered and the school went on lockdown. Students at the school informed KJ's mother that it was her son that was found. She tried to go to the gym to identify the body, but law enforcement refused to allow her to see it. The next day KJ's father, who was out of town for work, returned to town and tried to identify the body but was denied access. The LSCO took KJ's body to the Valdasta Lounge Regional Crime Lab. This lab does not have any affiliation with the GBI or the office of the coroner, but is directly connected to the Lowndes County Sheriff's Office in Valdasta City Police Department. Sheriff Prine was adamant in stating that officers in his office were not involved in compromising the death scene or the body as false. It was officers directly connected to LSCO that had access to the body after it was discovered. The gym mat shoe theory doesn't work. There is no way a teenager would dive headfirst into a mat propped up in the corner of the gym to get a shoe, while holding his headphones in his hand. If alone, it is impossible that his sneakers would end up on top of him. KJ's shoes were most likely taken off of him so his killers could more easily fit his body into the mat while rolling it up. From the very start, KJ's family never believed the story of the mat. It was only the second day back after Christmas break that KJ was killed. Lowndes High School was supposed to hand over all surveillance video the morning KJ's body was discovered. The IT tech said there was a problem and supposedly handed over video days later. KJ's family had to sue the school in court to get access to it. CNN also gained access to it and called experts in to evaluate. These experts said there was hours missing from the cameras right outside the gym. With all the discrepancies of evidence, testimonies, and witnesses, we call bullshit on the official story. So has the federal prosecutor who opened an investigation in October 2013. Karen Bell, wife of FBI agent Rick Bell and mother of Brandon and Brian Bell, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that her sons and FBI agent husband are the targets of a federal investigation. 
Bryan and KJ had fought before and the Johnson family are suing Lowndes County School District for not protecting KJ from being bullied by the Bell brothers on campus. Brian is a star linebacker on the football team and is committed to playing for FSU football next year under coach Jimbo Fisher. In fact, Jimbo Fisher was visiting Lowndes High School and pulled Brian Bell out of class the morning that KJ's body was discovered in the old gym. In interviews, Karen Bell says her son is the victim and is afraid for his safety. There are only two students who refused to be interviewed by investigators, Brandon and Brian Bell. However, Brian and his mother Karen have been interviewed by Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Karen has given several interviews to Adam Floyd of the Valdasta Daily Times. Adam Floyd is the main writer assigned to the Kendrick Johnson case for the Valdasta Daily Times and is the creator of the Kendrick's Last Walk video on YouTube as well as providing a timeline for KJ's disappearance. You should know that Adam Floyd was a teacher at Mounds High School when KJ was killed. He left his teaching job to be employed full-time at the Valdasta Daily Times. Brandon Bell told a reporter on Twitter that the wrestling team was in Macon, Georgia on January 9th, 10th and 11th. The information first given by Lowndes High School was that the wrestling team left early on the morning of January 10th. Now, thanks to evidence found through the Johnson family lawyers, Lowndes High School has admitted that the wrestling team did not leave LHS until 12.30 on January 10th. This leaves a block of time in which KJ, Brandon, and Brian Bell all had lunch. The narrative provided by Lowndes County Sheriff's Office said that KJ went missing during fourth block. However, thanks to an interview with Lee Touchton, lead investigator of the SCLC, we know KJ went missing during third block, where he shared a lunch period with both Bell brothers. Recently released surveillance video by the Johnson family lawyers shows Brandon Bell crossing the hallway back and forth by the old gym. At one point he completely changes his clothing. There is a cover-up of mass proportions in Valdasta, Georgia. There is no way that the official story could be the truth. KJ was found beaten and bloody stuffed inside of a mat that he could have gotten out of. The collection of evidence was mishandled purposely to help cover up the crime. The surveillance was edited with hours deleted. The only DNA tested the blood on wall to match KJ's and it didn't match. What really happened to Kendrick Johnson that day? Who killed that boy before he could begin exploring life after high school? Why did the authorities not do a full and complete investigation into the death of this teen? With every piece of new evidence that is revealed there are more questions raised than answers given. Some black students were told they were not allowed to be interviewed by law enforcement. Administration at Mounds High School told students if they talked, their graduation would be threatened. The people of Valdasta know a cover-up has taken place and that local law enforcement will harass and arrest them for providing false statements. The people are afraid of the backlash if they come forward. The time has come for those people to join the fight for justice. Expose the corrupt for who they are. Expose the racism that is alive and well in Valdasta. The time has come to stand against the oppressors and fight for the truth. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Lowndes County, Georgia. You should have expected us. As it stands now, there just aren't going to be any criminal charges filed against the Bells, or against anyone for that matter, since this has been ruled an accident by the county officials and after a lengthy FBI investigation has failed to bring about federal charges in the matter, we must consider Brian and Brandon Bell completely innocent of all charges. Investigators believe that Kendrick reached down into that wrestling mat to retrieve a shoe that had fallen in, 
because he was five foot ten and the mats are six feet tall and that it was something he was capable of doing grab his shoes and wiggle out and in doing so he had accidentally positioned his arms in such a way that he was unable to lift himself back out of the mat and that in his struggles to get out managed to get himself wedged in there even further and this constricted him and while attempting to pull himself out he kicked his shoes off of his own feet unless new evidence surfaces then that's how this will stand as for the Johnson family civil suit how that will play out remains to be seen it still feels to me anyway that the odds are stacked against them Kendrick's family through all their sadness and grief continue to fight on in search of justice for the death of their son we are going to take a look at some of the theories surrounding Kendrick's death and explore the possibilities of a conspiracy and a cover-up now as Justin takes over with his in-depth look at the mysterious circumstances surrounding so many aspects of this case take it away Justin Hey everybody, uh, glad everyone decided to tune in and listen to me and Roseanne again. We did get such good feedback from the first time that we did decide to go ahead and almost immediately do another episode together. Um, this one was chosen, I believe, by one of her listeners. And before I get started, I would like to thank Roseanne for uh, letting me tag along on this one and for presenting a flawless account of events surrounding the death of Kendrick Johnson. She did a phenomenal job. I have the utmost respect for her. She's pretty amazing. So thank you, Roseanne. And uh, thanks to all her listeners who do like me participating in these episodes. So I suppose before we do get going, I do got to give a little bit of a disclaimer here uh, at a certain point in time, we are going to touch on some race relations in the Georgia area and the high school. And, you know, we're going to talk about the NAACP and the uh, SCLC, which is the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Just so everybody knows here, okay, obviously anybody who knows me knows I am not a racist person. I'm a firm believer that we're all energy in the universe. That means... I really don't care about anybody's race. I call it like I see it. I don't care if you're black, white, brown, yellow, purple, green, or red. I'm going to tell you this right now, okay? This was a tricky, tricky case. Um, and I, I love when Roseanne uh, gets these unsolved cases. It's it's so fun talking to her and going back and forth with her and stuff. It's, uh, you know, discussing certain areas and certain topics of the cases. I really enjoy it quite a bit. You know, this one was tricky. Because I will be perfectly honest with you, if you are looking at this case as Kendrick is murdered, you will find things that suggest that he was murdered. If you look at it like it was an accident, you will find things that support that theory of uh, just, I mean, one of the craziest accidents ever, but definitely not out of the realm of possibilities. Now, with that being said, anybody who's a regular listener of mine knows that I approach any case that I do with a non-biased opinion. I present facts from both sides of the spectrum. You know, that's that's one thing, I guess, about me that I'm really, really weird about. You cannot investigate anything with a single narrative. You have to look at every single angle. You have to look at every possibility. You have to dive in deep. 
that is what we did here. So I hope you all enjoy. So with that being said, I'm going to present the facts as if Kendrick was murdered first, and then I will present the facts of the other side of the spectrum that might suggest this was a crazy accident. Here we go. First, we'll address why he even would have been on the mats. We really don't know why he would have been. In other security footage, you can see several students sitting on those mats randomly, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he possibly was on those as well. But evidence speaking, Kendrick Johnson was found in a 14-inch diameter. You know, his shoulders are 19 inches. Really couldn't fit in there. He was in the Superman position with his forearm that was in front of him. He had the other arm uh, to the side of his body going downward towards his feet. It was, uh, his forearm was kind of curled up, up by his head and stuff like that. Uh, his feet were sticking out. His socks were kind of off. And it looks like the, the shoes were kind of dropped, like on the mat by his feet. There were other shoes there as well. There was, uh, one shoe that was found inside the mat down by his head. And there was another shoe found right outside the mat on the floor right there. He did have some tiny little cuts right around his nail beds, from what I understand, and there was a cut on his arm as well. Now, there is no explanation for this. We really don't know. Carozan had stated all of the blood, you know, that was present was not on the upper half of his body. He was in the inverted position for quite a long time, and his cause of death was ruled positional asphyxia now this is an actual medical term it does happen it is very very rare for this to happen but it is not unheard of all right there were no fluids found on the shoe that was uh, by his head inside the mat he was bleeding from his eyes nose and ears and you can pretty much assume that post-mortem, you know, some kind of body fluids did, you know, expel from his body. I did look at the post-mortem pictures. Like Roseanne stated, I am used to that. I actually did a case on actor Bob Crane, and that was some pretty gruesome stuff to look at. It really doesn't bother me. And you can tell... That obviously his face is very, very swollen. Now this could be from the blood all going to his face. We were not 100% sure. The family does claim that he was beaten. One thing about Kendrick is that he had recently gotten his braces off. So he had a perfect set of pearly white teeth. And in the post-mortem picture and uh, even the post-autopsy picture, it almost looks like his teeth are broken. Like, somebody literally took a steel-toed boot and kicked him in the mouth and broke his teeth out. That is totally unconfirmed. That's just what it looks like from the picture. I did not see the body firsthand, obviously. There were a few droplets of blood found on the wall beside the wrestling mat. This blood was found not to be Kendrick's. Now, when it did not match Kendrick's blood, they pretty much dismissed it as not even evidence whatsoever. It was expelled. It was 
totally taken out of the equation, which I do not understand at all. Most of us would think that would be pretty intriguing and we'd start testing other people that might be involved with the case almost immediately. Any kind of suspects available, other students in the school, whoever, you know what I mean? The janitor, the the principal, whoever. That blood is gone. Now, in the girls' restroom by the gymnasium, there were a bunch of bloody paper towels found and towels. This was tested. This blood was found to have female DNA. So that was pretty much also taken out of the equation. Now, it would have been nice to see if that blood matched the other blood that was found outside of the mat. That was not Kendrick's, but obviously we did not do that. So that's, uh, you know, pretty much the state of the body and the situation. Now with that, we'll touch on the security footage a little bit. There were over 48 hours of security footage that was handed over to the Johnson family and the legal teams and the Department of Justice, the NAACP, the SCLC, all these people. The only pieces of this security footage that is missing is literally the security footage that is around the time Kendrick Johnson died. Now, this is very shady because the school system says that these are motion-activated security cameras. Yes, they are. And you can see other students going in and out of the gymnasium. But when Kendrick jumps in, I mean, right about noon, you know, the security cameras kind of cut off a little bit. It's really weird. It's really jumpy. And literally the only camera that is pointed in the direction of the mats is the only one that is out of focus, which is extremely, extremely odd. There are six cameras in the gymnasium. There are 39 total in the school. Every camera in this gymnasium is strategically placed to cover every single crack and crevice of this gymnasium. Why is the only camera that is pointing on Kendrick Johnson and the wrestling mats the only one that's out of focus and blurry? Why is there missing times? There's no time stamps on the security cameras. We don't know. These are unanswered questions, which is super, super weird. Kendrick was 5'10". He was a triathlete. He was extremely strong, and he was taught to defend himself. He was not scared of a fight. With that being said, let's touch on this little weird thing for a second. The body was found between 9.30 and 10 a.m., and it was found by students and faculty. Within a couple of hours, with absolutely no autopsy, no toxicology report whatsoever, the family was told that there was no foul play involved and this was just a tragic accident. How can you do that? The coroner was not even called to the scene until six hours after the body was found, right around 4, 4.30 p.m., that is not right. Usually the coroner is the first person on the scene. That just does not make sense to me. And on top of the coroner showing up six hours after the fact and not even being notified of it until that late, the family of Kendrick Johnson was not even allowed to see the body until later that weekend on a Sunday. The body was found on a Friday. So Kendrick Johnson's dad, who did identify the body, he was not allowed to see the body until two days after the fact. 
And on top of that, Kendrick Johnson's father shows up. He says that the body was not preserved in the temperature that it should have been, that it uh, was warm in there to pretty much destroy any kind of evidence that might have been available. Now, we will touch on that in a little bit as well when I discuss the other side of the spectrum for the accident. Now, within 48 hours of the body being found, the cops come out and they tell the media that it was an accident. And again, this is before an autopsy and a toxicology report. How did they know that? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There's a reason. There's a very popular TV show called The First 48. This is when the investigation is crucial. And it seems like they really didn't even bother investigating anybody. And that would include the Bell brothers. Like Roseanne had said, you have Brian and Brandon Bell, whose dad just happens to be an FBI agent. Now, this is really peculiar because... Kendrick Johnson was a strong kid. Why would he go into the gym supposedly with enemies and, you know, go in there willingly? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The state of his face and from the looks of his teeth being broken out, he would have had to have been attacked by more than one person, probably more than two people. Because like I said, Kendrick Johnson was a fighter. He he would stand his ground. There's no way. But there's actually no cause for him to go into this gymnasium in the first place. And that's another little interesting thing because in the security footage, all we see is Kendrick entering the gym, and that's about it. Then all the security footage cuts out. Now, is it possible for these two brothers and possibly somebody else to all three attack Kendrick. Yes, it's very possible. Is it possible for their dad to be able to have the power to cover this up? That is very, very possible, especially when the main investigation of it was headed off not only by the uh, Sheriff's Department, but by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation itself. And speaking of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation... They don't have the best record out there, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, in one statement in an email, they even had some of their facts wrong. They said that Kendrick was reaching for a book and not a shoe. Obviously, we all know that that's not right. And if you want to know a good case that you can look into that did that the GBI really messed up on, look into Meredith Emerson in 2008, her death. The GBI screwed this case up so bad that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is a fairly reputable news source, went to do a story on it. And when the GBI found out, they straight up told them that if you print this story and make us look bad, we will shut you down entirely without even thinking about it. So this story never really even got printed. And, you know, that's kind of how the GBI operated in that one particular case could they do it in another one yes it is totally weird after the first autopsy a lot of questions come up again with the gbi and the coroner and the funeral home and let's get into this for a second now when the autopsy was completed the organs did end up missing now what the 
GBI claims is that they did the testing that they needed to do on the organs and they were returned to the funeral home after taking slides and uh, samples from those organs and then those uh, samples and slides going into storage, which is, you know, pretty much routine. The thing about this is, is when the second autopsy was done, obviously they exhumed the body. It was done about six weeks after the results of the initial autopsy, and it was done by a private pathologist in Florida by the name of Dr. Anderson. Now, he found that the organs were not with the body. Now, funeral homes can either dispose of organs or they can put them in a little plastic bag and put them back in the body. Now, what they do is they shove the body usually with sawdust. They used to do it with newspaper up until about the early 70s. Now, the reason this caused suspicion is because it was done with newspaper and nobody really could account for the organs. Now, yeah, that is a little bit suspicious, but I don't know. That's not really a red flag in my book, to be perfectly honest with you. Now, touching on the second autopsy, when the second autopsy was conducted, it was found that there was some trauma to the right side of the neck. There was some bruising in that area. and Dr. Anderson concluded that this was no accident, that this trauma actually caused a heart attack. That's pretty much where the Johnson family is at right now, that this is no accident. There's no way. Now, the two main suspects that the Johnsons point out are the Bell brothers. We did talk about the travel log a little bit. and Obviously, as we know, it's not technically a travel log. So I don't know how much stock you want to put in that. What the Johnsons claim is that the two Bell brothers and possibly one other person attack Kendrick over one of the three things that any high schooler will fight about. One is girls. A high schooler will fight at the drop of a hat when it comes to a girl. Now apparently Kendrick had slept with one of the Bell brothers' girlfriends or his previous girlfriend. We're not too clear on that. And there had been a previous altercation between one of the Bell brothers and Kendrick. And apparently this kind of stewed over and it was still going on. Now, one of the other things that could possibly start a fight between high school males and probably college too would be jealousy. Kendrick Johnson was a triathlete. He was five foot ten. He was strong. He had aspirations to go to the NFL. This particular high school in Georgia has actually pumped out a lot of professional athletes. Now, one of the Bell brothers was set up to go to Florida State University on a scholarship. That scholarship ended up getting revoked in 2015 because of this case. They did not want to deal with anything about it, so they pretty much revoked the scholarship and said, sorry, dude, you're done. Is it possible that the Bell brothers would have attacked Kendrick Johnson in the gymnasium with possibly one other person and beat him, killed him, and put him in this mat and or rolled him up in this mat? Yes, that is very, very possible. Was it on purpose? There's huge differences between first degree, second degree, and third degree murder. It is very, very possible that they could have just jumped this dude and, you know, just beat him to a bloody pulp and just left him there thinking he was knocked out, 
possibly even returned to the gymnasium the next morning, put him in the mat as a joke, or even did that while he was knocked out. That is a very good possibility. And when they saw the error of their ways and realized the severity of the issue, they had their father step in and pretty much control the investigation and use his power and pull his strings to support the narrative that this was an accident. Now, this would support a lot of the theories around the security camera footage. This would also support a lot of the theories around the coroner not being called until six hours later or showing up until six hours later. This would also support why a lot of these students would not talk. I believe there were like 50 students that were interviewed within that six months time span None of them had anything to say. One of the things that we heard is that, you know, the race relations, that this was a race thing, that Kendrick Johnson's murder was covered up because he was a young African-American male. Now, you do hear a couple things, and you do read a couple things that say that possibly the black students were threatened with graduation. Like, if you speak out against this case... We will not let you graduate. But at the end of the day, as of now, it's been five years. A lot of those students are probably out of college, and not a single one of them has come forward and said that any school official told them not to talk about this case. Nobody has come forward and you know, retracted any former statements and said, yeah, we had some race problems. This was probably a race problem. Nobody has ever said that. So you have to take that with a grain of salt, all right? You know, obviously, Roseanne filled you in on a lot of the straight facts. And those are pretty much covering what possibly could have happened, you know, in a scenario to where Kendrick Johnson was attacked. You need means, motive, and opportunity when you're looking at a murder. Who had the means? Who had the motive? Who had the opportunity? Did the Bell Brothers have an opportunity? We don't know. Did the Bell Brothers, you know, have the means? Yeah, they did because you can tell that they probably had the means to beat him to a pulp. Okay, because his face was pretty jacked up. You also got to look at, you know, the motive. Why would they do this? Was Kendrick Johnson taking one of their starting positions on the football team? Was he maybe messing around with one of the guy's girlfriends? You know, one of their ex-girlfriends? You know, we're not sure. Personally, if it were me looking at this case as an investigator on the scene within the 48 hours of this happening, I would personally look at any girls in the high school that Kendrick would have been in contact with, and I would have looked at their affiliations with other boys in the school to see where this kind of stuff would match up with a possible suspect. I would also look at students who would possibly have been absent from school in the following days. Now, obviously, you know, there was a death in the school, so they probably let out school for a few days or a week or whatever the case might have been, I would have definitely checked out that stuff. Now, the security footage, I will admit, it took them a long time to release the security footage. You know, all of this stuff leads up to a huge conspiracy theory. And I hate saying that word, but you gotta think, 
if the Bell brothers and possibly another assailant either purposely or accidentally killed Kendrick Johnson, there had to be a massive cover-up on all levels. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the local level, the local sheriff's department. This case went to the Department of Justice, all right? This case was taken on by the NAACP. It was taken on by the SCLC. It was taken on by several judges in several states, and nobody will touch this case. Does one FBI agent who has two kids in school that possibly murdered another teenager, whether the cause be by accident or on purpose, does this one FBI agent have the power to pull strings within the Department of Justice? You know what? You never know. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. But you got to think of a lot of different scenarios there. You know, would Kendrick Johnson be willing to go into a gym where he knew people were not, you know, friendly with him? You know, where he knew there was possibly going to be a fight with one, two, or three people? We don't know. Did these people just decide to jump him? Think he was just knocked out and put him in this wrestling mat as a joke thinking he was going to wake up? We have to think about that. We have to think about Kendrick Johnson. Why would he position his body in here to grab a freaking shoe? Why wouldn't he just push over this wrestling mat? Again, we don't know. Some of this stuff does not add up. One of the things in the autopsy that I did forget to mention, by the way, for you people who do not listen to my show, I don't use a script. I have notes, so sometimes I forget things every now and then. But one thing about the autopsy, too, is that with this asphyxia, when you're hanging upside down, it is noted that what happens is fluid will go to the lungs. Now, in the initial autopsy, the GBI did say that the lungs weighed the same, which means there would have been no fluid in the lungs. So, that right there would definitely suggest murder, and the GBI would have you know, definitely just admitted to it that possibly there is a cause for foul play right there. Now, judging by the post-mortem pictures of Kendrick Johnson's face, you know, it does look like he had some teeth knocked out. I mean, it's straight up, it looks bad. I'm not even gonna lie. They're pretty gruesome pictures, okay? But you have to take a lot of different things into account if you're going to go out and accuse people of murder. You have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The Bell brothers were refused questioning. They would not answer any questions relative to this case. Would that be because their father was an FBI agent? Yeah, probably. He probably knows how it goes. So he probably coached them. He said, don't talk to anybody. We're going to lawyer up. This is how it's going to go. You also have to wonder, there were kids in and out of this gym the entire day before, how could nobody have seen these feet sticking out? And that brings up another question. January, I don't know what part of the country you guys are in or what country, you know, you currently live in, whether it's America or not. That's basketball season. This was in a gymnasium. Where was basketball practice being held that day? Did they have a game right after school that they were going to? That's a weird little fact that nobody has really touched on that I am very, very, very curious about. You know, there's a lot of questions here. With those questions comes a lot of medical facts and other stuff related to that. 
which I'm going to touch on now. Now we're going to talk about the other side of the spectrum in which we might discuss how this was an accident, how it might have happened, you know, the medical aspects of it, and some of the misinformation that is out there. Alright, to start off with, we'll touch on the scenarios of this possibly being an accident. Now let's say you're sitting on a mat, somebody throws a pair of shoes at you, one of those shoes falls outside the mat onto the floor, the other one falls inside the mat. Can you position your body to go down there and get that shoe? Yes, yes you can. Because in the position that Kendrick was in, it is not totally unheard of to be able to contort your shoulders either inward or slant one in front of the other to make yourself fit in there. And you should know too that the measurement of his shoulders was taken when he was laying on his back. Which in that position, naturally, your shoulders are probably going to be at their longest length. Kendrick Johnson was five foot ten. Some people say this mat was seven foot. It was not. It was just over six feet tall. So theoretically, Kendrick Johnson could have extended his one arm, held on to the top of the mat with the other, and reached down and grabbed his shoe and possibly wiggled out. You know, a lot of people say, well, he should have wiggled his body and knocked the mat over and gotten out. That's not necessarily the case. These mats, when rolled up, full size, can be upwards of about 600 pounds. The diameter of this thing right here is literally slim. He barely fit in here. There's no way he really would have been able to move his body other than his feet. Now it is, you know, possible that he kicked off his shoes to try to help wiggle himself out or they came off during the struggle, something of that nature. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of different scenarios that could have played out in that factor. Now let's look at the bleeding from the ears, eyes, and nose. If you do have some kind of trauma to the neck, straight up medically stated, yes. If you are hung upside down after trauma from the neck, it'll take no more than probably, you know, about three hours at the minimum for you to start bleeding out of your ears. I don't know how that's possible. I'm not a medical doctor, but I did read that from a couple sources, so I do take that as fact. As for the eyes and nose, yes, if you were previously in a fight or there are any kind of lacerations on the face, you know, I'm not saying that Kendrick didn't get into a fight. Maybe he did. It is possible to start bleeding from those orifices, you know, within a few hours. And the length that Kendrick Johnson was upside down, yes, this is entirely possible. Now, I can't really speak for the fluid in the lungs part. You'll have a lot of people, private investigators, say that, you know, there was no fluid in the lungs. There should have been fluid in the lungs if he was upside down for this amount of time. I cannot confirm that, but what I can confirm is that it only takes three to six hours for your inner organs of your body to press so hard on your lungs that you will asphyxiate. You will die of that positional asphyxia. Literally within three to six hours, Kendrick Johnson was upside down for a longer period of time than that. So yes, that is very, very possible. Now, speaking on the possibility of 
you know, there being a cover-up with the funeral home and the GBI. Now, like I had stated previously, his organs were not found. Now, it is the responsibility of the funeral home to either bag these organs up, place them back in the body, or dispose of them. Now, obviously, we do not know which of these two things happened. The GBI did take test samples, and they have those samples still to this day. On their behalf, there's not. I'm really not seeing any wrongdoing right about there. I do think it's weird that the funeral home decided to new, to use newspaper instead of, you know, sawdust or whatever else might be common practice nowadays. But in all honesty, that's not against the law. They could have been cheap. The only thing they're guilty of is being behind on the times. You know, that's that's not really a law type thing. That is a decision that they can make themselves. There's no law stating you have to do this, that, or the other while stuffing this body. Now, a lot of people will say, well, the funeral home can embalm the organs as well. And, you know, when they do that, they put that in the bag. Obviously, I'm pretty sure that the funeral home did dispose of the organs because they were not found in the second autopsy. Now, touching on the second autopsy, Dr. Anderson did conduct this autopsy when he found blunt force trauma to the right side of the neck of the body, and he states that this ended up being the cause of death by heart attack. But what they don't tell you is that this bruising, this blunt force trauma, was literally a bruise the size of your thumbnail. It was extremely small. And unfortunately, the Johnson family ran with this as being foul play. It should also be known there were no broken throat bones anywhere on Kendrick Johnson. Only this bruise that measured less than an inch, alright? You guys should know that Dr. Anderson himself never even said that Kendrick Johnson was beaten before he was placed in this mat. He even stated himself that this was skin slippage due to autopsy and due to the state of the body for being upside down for this long. It got swollen because of blood flow, which does make sense. And you should also know that there is a reason Dr. Anderson is a private pathologist because he was fired by the state of Florida for unprofessional and unethical practices. I know a lot of you are like, well, that doesn't mean he's lying. No, it doesn't. But he never literally said that, you know, Kendrick Johnson took a beating. But as kind of insight to what kind of person he is, you should know that information. That he was fired by the state of Florida for unprofessional and unethical practices. Now let's touch a little bit on the security footage. I am not a technical type person. Obviously I am a podcaster. That does not mean that I am technical at all. So I can't really speak for no timestamp on the security footage and the missing security footage itself and for the blurry security footage. I cannot speak on that because 
Maybe it was a freak accident. Maybe it was a huge conspiracy. I'm not sure about that. But I will say this. The Johnsons almost immediately said this was a racial issue and called in the NAACP and the SCLC. Now, why this is important is because after the initial investigation from the Sheriff's Department, the NAACP and the SCLC took these investigations over separately. The Johnsons claim, first off, that while the body was in the morgue, uh, the temperature was not controlled to destroy evidence. This is untrue. There are so many backups for this type of scenario that this is literally almost impossible and out of the control of a lot of people. This is literally on timers. It's a fail-safe. It, it is literally a fail-safe. There's generators all over the place to prevent things like this from happening. While we are talking about the morgue and the autopsy, the quote-unquote post-mortem picture that the Johnsons do post on their Facebook page and on posters that they are using to rally and stuff like that and to organize protests, that is not a post-mortem picture. That is a post-autopsy picture, which means that the face was peeled back to investigate the muscles in the facial area for any kind of foul play, any kind of bruising, any kind of trauma, and then it is put back. That is the most famous picture that you see, and that was taken by Mr. Johnson at some point in time, and to be perfectly honest with you, nobody even knows how he got this picture. The post-mortem picture, I will admit, straight up, Looks like a few guys just beat him in the face bad. There is bruising all over. But it is very possible that this is caused by the blood flow to the face over an extended period of time, which would have happened while he was inverted for, you know, 16 hours. You know, that's definitely very, very possible. And the reason that I brought up the NAACP and the SCLC as well is because both of those civil rights organizations found the same results in their independent investigations that the local sheriff's department did find. The person who heads the Georgia chapter of the NAACP, a woman by the name of Lee Touchton, she headed this. She was very, very adamant and vocal. Now, she found out, you know, about their issues and that this might have been a racial issue. Their independent investigation found that, yes, this was an accident. And she ended up resigning from the NAACP because of this case. And here's why. It was found that the Johnson family and their attorney, Shaveen King, were putting out misleading information and pretty much lying to the NAACP and the SCLC about information regarding this case. Some of that information being 
that the security footage was not handed over until months and months later. That is untrue. What happened was, after the initial death, the family was invited to look over the security footage several times. They refused this. Because of that, the court had to release this security footage to the public. Now what happens is the NAACP themselves tried to have the Johnson family go to the school board and view the security footage. They did not. Nor did their attorney, Shaveen King. Why? Why did they not go to look at the security footage? What they ended up doing was they told King to file a motion with the courts to release the security footage. The Johnson's attorney, Shaveen King, did not do this. He sat on it. He would not do it. Why? We don't know. The Johnson family also never went and looked at this security footage when they were invited several times by the school board and the NAACP themselves to look at that security footage as soon as this occurred. They would not do it. What ended up happening was the local sheriff's department and the school board themselves filed the motion to the court system to have this video surveillance released because the Johnson's attorney would not do it. Kind of weird, right? So after the NAACP gets done with their investigation and finds out that the Johnson family were pretty much, I don't want to say lying to them because that's a touchy word, but they were putting out a lot of false information, okay? Lee Touchton resigns from the Georgia chapter of the NAACP after she personally and the NAACP and the county sheriff's department and the SCLC all corroborate the initial autopsy of this being just pretty much a tragic accident. They all found no reason to suspect foul play. Now, after Lee Touchton resigns from the NAACP, she goes to work for the SCLC right in time for them to start a second investigation into the death of Kendrick Johnson, in which, again, they find, without a doubt, there is no reason to suspect foul play. Well, this stuff keeps going on, okay? As for the security footage, like we just touched on a little bit, you know, yeah, I'll admit, there is some weird shit going on with the security footage. We have, you know, missing time, and the only time that Kendrick Johnson died within a 48-hour period. So what that pretty much says is, where were the bells when all this was going on? Well, Brian Bell himself... Eyewitness accounts from teachers and students and other videotape security camera footage places him in a classroom at the time of Kendrick Johnson's death. As for the other bell, I'm not 100% sure. I think he was the one that was on the bus on the way to a wrestling match or whatever the case might have been. Granted, I don't understand why you'd have a wrestling tournament in another town X amount of miles away, you know, in the middle of a school day. I really don't understand that. But all these little things should be known because 
there's a lot of misinformation out there on this case. There is no actual evidence to support any kind of racial motivation behind this. There's no evidence to support that the Bell Brothers had anything to do with this. You know, don't get me wrong. There are some very, very weird things going on with this. So you basically have to weigh your options. Personally, I'm 50-50 on this. I really can't say either way. All I know is that I have kids. I have two young sons, okay? And I cannot even fathom the thought of losing one of my kids. I don't even want to think about that. And especially if it was a tragic accident like this. Would I look for somebody to blame? Yeah, I would. I would look for anybody to blame. Is that possibly what the Johnson family is doing or was doing? You know, it's a possibility. Is it a possibility that this is a big cover-up? Yes, yes, it is. I mean, it's very possible. It's. I've seen weirder things happen in cases that I've covered. You can trust that. At the end of the day, you have to weigh the facts for both sides of the case with a non-biased opinion. And that's how you have to approach certain things like this. And with that being said, that's pretty much all I have for you facts-wise. You know, there's a lot of other information out there. Obviously, you know, I can't dedicate, you know, a month or two to examine all angles of the medical aspect and stuff like that because there's a lot of details out there. But... You know, just keep all of that in mind, and uh, again, I would like to thank Roseanne for including me on this episode. I hope you listeners were not disappointed. Um, I enjoy working with Roseanne, and I'm pretty sure, you know, we more than likely will be working again on something. So, you know, I'd like to thank Roseanne again. She's phenomenal, did an amazing, amazing jo- job on the timeline and the uh, events surrounding, you know, the death scene and the uh, events surrounding, you know, the time period around the death and stuff like that. And um, for my listeners, like I always say, I will see you on the flip side. Thank you again.